From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our weekday daily discussion on race, segregation, and issues that sprang from the top shootings on May 14th. Today, healing. I lost my teaching job. I lost my my identity as a swimmer. I lost my identity as a person. I, I lost my child. I lost everything. There was no reason for me to live. Kelly Whitfield from The Healing Hub says there's nothing we all can't get through. If you see me out there, you'll see me running around dancing. Everybody knows I dance when I walk because if I can heal, (laughs) if somebody like me, I can heal, anybody can heal. Also, Herb Bellamy on African-American achievers in Buffalo and how business could thrive on the east side. Will student loan forgiveness matter in communities of color? Find out next. And political science professor Anthony Neal on black voting patterns. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for being with us. We begin today's program with a powerful discussion on healing and trauma. Kelly Whitfield is the founder and director of The Healing Hub in Buffalo, and she shared her personal story and talked about community growth with Jay Moran. You know, Kelly, we've heard different people talk about the the healing and how important it is for the community, but can you, as best you can, because I know you've spent a lot of time on the ground in and around that neighborhood. What is the state right now? Can you you sum it up as as you understand from people that you've talked to? The mental state in that community is kind of a frozen state, kind of um, survivor mode, right? Fight or flight, right? Um, Some of our clients that actually were in TOPS feel like they haven't even processed or healed from the unaddressed trauma before that happened in that community, right? And now they're trying to um, figure out what their next step is um, and, and in, in this healing process, right? Where do they feel safe? Where do they feel safe to come to, to talk about kind of how they feel, what's going on, um, confusement too. Yeah, but it is interesting that the emotional support, the you know mental health support, yeah. it seems that it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. No. Would you agree? I definitely agree. There's a stigma, right, to talk about mental health, right? There's a stigma. Our society gives a stigma. And independent families, right, um, kind of condition um, the children that what goes in the house stays in the house, mm. um, especially in the black community. So we stay sick. We stay stuck. We stay broken, Right. So um, there's definitely a stigma. And that causes one of the biggest barriers, that and the fear of being judged. Right. So um, I know that it kept me out there. um, And I know from talking with people out there that that's what keeps them out there as well. Your backstory is is very compelling. And I do want want to touch upon it because I think it'll be instructive to this conversation. But I don't want to focus on that just yet. I Mm -hmm. want to stay with Healing Hub and what you're trying to to accomplish here. So the Healing Hub's mission is we create a safe space for anyone to heal from unaddressed trauma, right? We create that safe space by creating a judgment-free space, right? And by doing that, we have a lot of the people that are out there, boots on the ground. These people have been through the fire themselves, which makes it more welcoming for people to share their truths, right? So um, like a peer healing, right? So uh, when people come up to our tables, um, first of all, 
um, we give lunches out that already have writing on them. I see you. You're heard. You're amazing. You're special. Because on Maine and Utica, you've got like a triangle of trauma, right? You've got your methadone clinic right there. You've got the v uh, there's a VA clinic there and you've got a mental health clinic there, right? And uh, there's a lot of drug activity. There's some prostitution. There's a lot of overdosing that's going on over there. And, um, you know, people don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, and they definitely don't feel loved, right? So when they come into this welcoming, loving space, wherever we go, we offer it in, in a hub as well. But wherever they go, this is, this is the kind of space that we create. People seem to just come and drop their truth, right? It's amazing. It's miraculous, right? And when they drop their truth, that's when they can start healing from their truth, right? And that's when we can provide services. If we can't provide a service someone needs to empower them to take that next step to healing, we're going to find someone that can. So we don't just bring food to these food giveaways. We bring clothes. We bring hygiene products. Anything our community needs, we're going to find it and we're going to bring it. For an example, um, we, we um, serve the homeless community on Saturdays. Right. There's a lot of recovery and addiction, a lot of brokenness, a lot of trauma down there. So when we go um, down there, like blankets are needed and things like that. I was just there last Saturday and a woman who has been homeless for 20 years has finally found housing. Right. And she's like super excited. Mm. And so this is what we do. Right. This is just what we do. It, it, it's no it's nothing's too big. Nothing's too small. We're going to find a way to help service our community. Can you generalize about some of the things that you hear? Well, um, it's interesting because I hear different things at different locations, right? So with the homeless community, I hear a lot of the people in the homeless community want to stay out there because they don't want to be in a judgmental society. They just don't. They would rather stay homeless than to to do that, right? They would rather stay homeless and they have built their own community within each other where they trust each other. Right. And and they're kind of their own family. So we hear a lot of that downtown on Saturdays, on Fridays, um, just a lot of. Um, people are looking for a lot of hope to stop using. Um, it's riddled with addiction on Maine and Utica. Right. So just a lot of hope to stop using. Um, they feel like they've been forgotten about on Jefferson. Okay, um, a lot of uh, uh, survivors from the mass shooting feel like um, once the cameras have left and all the big organizations have left out the way, they feel like they're vulnerable, left out there, and they don't even know what to do. I have one client, and she says it all the time. She's like, I don't care about compensation. I don't care about anything. Who's going to help my mental health for years? Who's going to be there so I don't bleed on my children? I can't even leave my house to go to work. And if I can't work, I don't have money. If I don't have money, I'm homeless. And she talks about this is not even the trauma she's had to deal with for the 30 years she's already been living. Right. So it's now become layers and layers and layers of trauma like an onion. Right. Just layers and layers. Your group is basically your volunteers. We all we volunteer. Yes. And, you know, these are. Counselors, yes. teachers, artists. That's right. Talk about how they go about their business. Oh, it's it's amazing. So we do have um, counselors on the board that actually have private practices, but they still, they know the urgency and they know that a lot of our clients, a lot of our community don't even have insurance, 
right? So how are we going to provide them with the mental health healing that they need, right? We have to do a grassroots type of thing. Even before, like the mass shooting, we offered a safe haven, like like you talked about, through art, through music, through doulas, because racism is obviously um, trauma, right? And we know that, you know, women are three times more likely to die giving childbirth being a black woman, right, than a white woman. So we do have black women doulas who, who are women's voices, right? Um, we have... Um, uh, writing workshops and how to command your morning workshops. And then, you know, we have, you know, uh, restorative healing um, circles that we offer. So we all know that we didn't get traumatized the same. We're not going to heal the same. So that's why we offer that variety. And our board is made up of a variety of people as well, right? And all the healers. So we have a board and we have the healers and then we have coordinators and we have the food drive coordinators as well. So it's it's a lot of pieces, moving pieces to, to the organization. But um, the board members are very passionate about um, the healing that needs to be seen in the community. Um, we have one board member, and I can say her name, Felicia Stanley. She's amazing. Um, she's a therapist. She worked for Best Self. She was boots on the ground there offering free counseling. You know, Felicia is amazing. She has her own organization, No Wound Untreated, and we're collaborating those two organizations because we're so parallel. But she was there Monday through Sunday on Jefferson. Mm. Right. Or at the resource council every day, every day, plus her job, plus her paying job. So um, our, our board's made up of people like that. We're talking with uh, Kelly Whitfield. She is the founder and executive director of Healing Hub. What about success stories? Because like you said, everybody heals at a different pace, a different time frame. What about successes that you've seen? What can you share? We have so many success stories. And we blast them all over social media. There <laughs> so we go. Come on. <laughs> like I said, just, just, I mean, we just have one of our clients in um, downtown finding housing after 20 right. years. That's great. Just yeah. from being empowered, right? Like we had a teenager um, who was transitioning, right, from female to male and um, being bullied and things like that and found their power through music and private guitar lessons. Right. Um, we had um, and now this teenager is able to use their voice. Right. Um, we've had um, people who have been um, survivors of the mass shooting who have been homeless because of that trauma now have housing. Right. Um, we have um, people who have healed from art or healed through art so empowered that now they're teaching workshops to other people. They're teaching art workshops to other people, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a lot. People have been clothed, fed. It's just miraculous to see. It really is. And cycles have been broken. Cycles have been broken. You know, let's talk about cycles a little bit because we, yeah. we touched on something you said before we were on the air, and I want to try to get back to it because it, it was such a fascinating perspective. I've had People sit in the very chair that you're black professionals, people with advanced degrees saying, this, talking about the stress of being black in America on a daily basis. But you brought up something about unchecked trauma yeah. that is getting passed on from generation to generation. That's right. Expand on that, please. That's right. So you've got generational trauma, but you've got generational trauma that kind of stays in your cells, right? Trauma stays stays in our cells and it's passed by, it's passed on so I kind of um, 
it's passed on, and we talked about um, environmental, and it's also passed on through, um, uh, you know, just birth, right? Um, I, I talked about, you know, a, a white grandma, right, and a black grandma. Somebody's white grandmother was watching lynchings, eating popcorn, right? Somebody's black grandma was getting raped by five police officers, right? And 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 passing that trauma down onto her family. So it's like it's 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 really you know it's passed on. We don't talk about that trauma that's held in ourselves, right? We don't talk about that trauma that kind of has us living fight or flight in survivor mode on a daily basis. And then after we're born, the traumas that are poured on after that, right? So it's just layer and layer, um, layers of trauma that we don't address. And if you don't address this trauma as a child, it's going to manifest into something different as an adult, you know, and it's going to be really, it's, it is, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to find and to heal and to understand your triggers and trauma and things like that. So we need to talk about it more. Um, and we talked about um, that it's not spoken about because of the stigma. And also the idea that it's almost become ingrained to a certain extent, culturally ingrained mm-hmm. inside black Americans it has to just that push it down. Can't, can't talk about it. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that are passed through is our resilience, right? Which, All the way which from is slavery. A, which is of course something to be hailed for that, sure. That's right. That's right. But we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to be so resilient. Do you know what I mean? That's it. That's that's the whole problem, right. right? We should have a fair chance, right? Because we're already born into trauma. I was born into trauma, you know. Um, it's it's just like a setup, you know. And then we're and then everybody's kind of expected to learn the same in school and then be these successful people. It's really hard to be successful when you're living every day in fight or flight, when you're living every day in survivor mode. You don't plan for a future. You just plan to get through the next day. It's different, right? It is. Kelly Whitfield with us this morning on Buffalo. What's next? Um, you were kind enough to to share some of your personal story before, and you most certainly have uh, been gracious enough to to discuss it to a certain extent. And I'll I'll let you go as far as you want to go. But it's interesting we how you grew up in a, in a rural community um, where you know if you were subjected to racial slurs that you didn't even really understand were racial slurs. That's right. That's, that's, right. that's, that's an amazing reality. I was conditioned not to make waves. So I'll back up. I was actually, I was brought up in Fredonia. So um, Fredonia is a rural white community. Um, but I was adopted by two pedophiles. Hmm. Um, who have adopted and fostered other black and brown children um, and abused them. Um, I just happened to be the one that was kind of conditioned, right? Because if I was this perfect little girl, then nobody would think what they were doing on the inside of the house is what they were doing, right? So I was kind of like, um, you know, I was conditioned to always smile, Right. To be resilient. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to smile, um, to be polite, to always have manners. I was put in a different dress every day and I was put through everything you can think of, whether it be Girl Scouts, swimming. Everybody else in the house didn't get the same treatment. They were beaten, used as slaves, 
Um, my little brother who was adopted, he was beaten like every day, right? Um, I got that treatment because they needed somebody. They needed a scapegoat, right? So, um, And as, you excelled. You excelled in ex- school. Well, it's interesting because I did. I, I, I was a good student. I, I was a flute player. I, I was a, a, a county champion swimmer. Um, but people don't know how broken I was on the inside. Uh, people don't know that in middle school I was putting guns in my mouth. People don't know in high school I was bulimic, right? Um, I just needed something to cope with what I didn't understand. I hated myself. I hated myself. For someone who smiled so much and was so happy, I hated my insides. I didn't understand why I was so broken. And I went through life like that, right? Because I just didn't have any understanding. And because I didn't understand, I had no gut, I had no boundaries. And my body was used to being abused. So when I tell you our cells remember, they do. My brain didn't remember the details of the sexual abuse, but my body never forgot. So if a man came up behind me, you know, when I jumped, that's a trigger, right? And not understanding why, not understanding why I have this anxiety, why I have these, these thoughts in my head, why I have flashbacks, why am I so fight or flight, right? So, um... When uh, I, I found my escape through swimming and I, I became really good at it and I was so good at it and it was, was going to take me out of that environment. I was so excited. Um, I was really controlled by the people who adopted me. So there was only certain places I could go to college, but I was going to go as far away <laughs> as I could. And that was Iona. Mm-hmm. I got a full swimming scholarship to Iona. I couldn't wait. The summer before going to Iona, a car hit me going 70 miles per hour. I was going 55 head on. I used to work at Chautauqua Institute at an art gallery. And um, I looked down, and both my femurs were cracked. And this part of my leg was in this seat, and this part of my leg was up here on the door, and my ankle was underneath the car floor, and my tibias were crushed. My stomach was ripped open. My nose was ripped off my face. My lung was collapsed. And I was awake for the whole thing. <laughs> um, the steering wheel had taken my – I mean, the engine was in my lap. Um, and I was mercy flown to ECMC by the Buffalo Bills helicopter who practiced in Fredonia at the time. This was 1996. Mm. And um, I thought that I was paralyzed. So I remember saying to the witness who happened to be a priest, <laughs> <laughs> he came to the window and I was swearing at him. I'm like, leave me on the side of the road because I can't feel my legs. These legs were going to take me away. Right. And I can't feel them. I said, leave me on, on the side of the road. Um, I said some swear words, but I apologize later. Um, but, <laughs> but I was, I was, I was mercy flown DCMC. And I remember I was an athlete. I never did a drug. I never, I wouldn't even take aspirin. I remember in eighth grade, Mr. Tate said aspirin was going to cause stomach bleeds. Wouldn't even take an aspirin. Right. So the first drug they give me, I'm in intensive care, life support, ECMC. They're putting me all together. I have rods in my legs now, bolts in my hips, pins in my tibias, plates in my ankles. So they're putting me back together, 55 staples, all that good jazz. And they give me the morphine drip. And I have all this unaddressed trauma. And now I've got a morphine drip, <laughs> you know? And I and I say, you know, because I, I used to speak in the rooms of NA, Necrotic Synonymous, I say all the time, like, I overdosed the first time I used. That qualifies me to be <laughs> to sit here, you know, because I kept pushing that the button, and my ma- my machine wasn't set up, so I overdosed. They had to use the paddles to bring me back, right? But what I remember is the feeling of that drug, and remembering it's taking 
me away from all my problems. Like it's helping me cope emotionally. And from there, an addict was born for sure. For sure. So, um, and the doctors were prescribing me this medication. So I had no understanding. I never even seen a street drug before this, right? So I had no understanding what addiction was. No one told me about trauma. Everybody knew I had trauma, but nobody's talking about it because we don't talk about it. You be happy and you smile. You be grateful. Grateful, right? So um, an addict was born and and, um, I went from there to, I tried to, you know, take my degree. I went to college in a wheelchair. Hmm. Learned how to walk again. Well, because the the abuser took my credits, and and again, I have to be perfect. So I went to college that fall in an electric wheelchair, and I learned how to walk and everything again. And I got with an abusive guy, and um, he used to beat me and things like that. But again, I didn't understand because that's all I knew was abuse. Even though I didn't get physically abused, abuse is all my body knows. Right. It doesn't know. Either. I don't have red flags. I don't have a gut. Right. So people have, have violated my boundaries. I, I don't know any different. Right. So um, I take him down south. I go to North Carolina and take him down south with me. And um, I get pregnant down there. Um, and he puts me in a bathtub and beats that baby out of me because a guy looked at me. I was teaching fourth grade and um, I had a stillborn in a really, really, really racist hospital. Um. So I got to experience that, where they, they do think black women can handle more pain. They do. They left me on the floor bleeding and screaming while they were taking other people back there. And I was like, what, 21, 22, scared, right? I was losing my baby Jordan. And um, they finally took me back. They told me to stop screaming that I was bothering the other patients. They told me to be quiet, right? Um, and then after I passed my child, they threw him in a garbage can. I didn't know my rights. I didn't, I didn't have a voice. I was getting submerged under trauma. So what do I do? Use more, right? Because that's how, now I'm starting to learn that's how I'm going to cope, is I'm going to use drugs. And when I went to my first rehab for that in, in Jamestown, I came back up north. I realized I'm, I'm not manageable. I'm only on pain pills. When I went up to my first rehab in Jamestown, and nobody talked about trauma. We're only talking about drugs. And you put a bunch of broken people in one room. That's not productive, right? Because we're going to talk. We're going to talk about all our brokenness and how drugs are helping us. And because I don't know about addiction, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand I'm using drugs to cope with my feelings. I'm going to compare myself right out of this rehab. I'm nothing like any of you. And I left with a guy <laughs> who smoked crack. And I and and it's my favorite line. I went from being a teacher, you know, in the classroom to a student in the crack house overnight. Literally. Never saw a street drug and was introduced crack. And because I just wanted to cope with how I was feeling, I was doing it. So for years, for maybe two to three years, I was trying to kill myself with drugs. I was doing about 70 lower tabs, you know, two, two eight balls of, of crack, heroin on top of the same pipe. Um I, I was literally trying to kill myself. I wasn't using to have fun. Now I lost everything. I lost my teaching job. I lost my my identity as a swimmer. I lost my identity as a person. I, I lost my child. I lost everything. There was no reason for me to live. And I'm broken. I don't even want to hate myself anyways. I'm broken. So I stayed out there. And what kept me out there is the fear of being judged, right? I didn't feel safe enough to talk about anything that I was feeling 
are going through. Kelly Whitfield, um, you know, we're coming up to our final minutes. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to give the condensed version of your recovery. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to just maybe just leave it right there. Other okay. than to say that you were able to. Oh, yeah. Drug free. Oh, yeah. For years, I have a beautiful family now, right? I got pregnant with Cameron. He's my 17-year-old son. And that's what gave me purpose. And Healing Hub. And the Healing Hub. So even after I put the drug down, it didn't mean that I was healed. It wasn't until I got my memory back, got empowered, confronted my abusers. And that's when I started the Healing Hub because I realized I'm not alone. There are more people out there, right? And when it comes to Healing Hub... What's next for you and for this community? What's next is we we had a building in Amherst. It's a 5,000-square-foot building. It was right next door to a methadone clinic. We're trying to move into a building on Main Street to be able to provide all this wonderful healing right in the heart of where it needs to be, right? Right in the community that we serve with our food giveaways, community that we sit with every day. So um, that's what's next. We're trying to do that. and once we get this building, we'll be able to provide. And other organizations can come in this building. It'll be like a hub, like a, a hub for healing, right? Um, and we'll work together with other organizations to provide what the community needs, what the community deserves. You know, you may have taken the the answer to that question right out, but uh, this is a this is a Dave Debo, my partner uh, here on the show, asked this question: What does the community need? The community needs healing. Period. Because I don't care how many degrees you have or how awesome you are. It's really hard to live life if you have unaddressed trauma. There's a lot of unaddressed trauma out there. Of course, some of it lingering from May 14th. Yes. As we've talked about generational. Um, Do you have hope? I have so much hope. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. If you see me out there, you'll see me running around dancing. Everybody knows I dance when I walk because... If I can heal, <laughs> if somebody like me can heal, it's broken for 40 years. If I can heal, anybody can heal. Any, I guarantee it, anybody can heal. Learn more at healinghubny.org. Next, a look at businesses on Buffalo's east side with Herb Bellamy, who brings us the Buffalo Black Achievers Awards dinner each year in early October. He spoke with Dave Devo. A guy that can really talk about, again, this myth perhaps, that there is no business along Jefferson. Herb, thanks for coming by. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for letting me uh, come on your radio today. Tell me if that's a, a proper premise. Is there really no business along Jefferson? There's business on Jefferson, but I, I think what happens is um, sometimes we look too far in the past where they, we say it's not like what it used to be. Mm. Things are never going to be like what they used to be. But we can have a brand new ending and a brand new beginning. And there are a lot of people who've invested on Jefferson Avenue and, and myself included sure. to to continue to make the changes that are necessary. Now, is Jefferson and that area on the east side of Buffalo uh, still needed of many resources? Absolutely. It's a tremendous amount of resources that need to come to that community. And now that the cloth has been uh, unveiled, we should, you know, hopefully more people are looking to seeing what they can do to assist us to continue to grow on Jefferson Avenue. Give me a little bit of your background. What do you run along Jefferson? 
Well, I run the Black Achievers Museum, and uh, which uh, we've been honoring Black Americans for 50 years. 50 mm. years is our celebration this year. Wow. So we have a museum uh, showing all the uh, achievers over the last 50 years. We also have uh, two apartment buildings, which is called Bellamy Commons, where the Black Achievers Museum is is housed in. And also we have 1490 Estates, which we have elderly and senior housing. Is there retail along the way? Um, for me, I, you know, we grew up, I grew up in retail. I mean, right. we, we had a grocery store. We had a fish market. We had a liquor store. We, uh, I've always been in retail. Right now, I'm not in retail. Okay. But, uh, you know, I'm more on the development and consultant side to continue to bring the resources because it is a difficult process. And when you're trying to bring people together, when you're looking at financing and, and, and tax credits and things of that nature. So I've been able to work with other companies like uh, People Inc. I work with that project as we built the 84 apartments um, up near the, uh, the stadium yeah, we as a consultant. We should have mentioned Herb is also a um, insurance broker and a certified financial planner. No, I, I was. I you was. were. Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, so, that was a long. That was a while ago. I've probably been out the insurance and financial plan and business. Uh, that was, uh, ooh, probably about twenty years now. Oh man. Yeah, okay. I had. A, I have a building uh, on East Ferry, not too far, and that's where my office was. But I think the background is perhaps relevant because you would have a good look at what difficulties, what hurdles are there yes. in order to operate a business. Talk about that. And and whether it comes from the experience of, again, you and your dad and the grocery store, the liquor store, that sort of thing, or if I just came to you and said, Herb, you're a consultant, help me get X, Y, or Z off the ground. I, what what kind of hurdles are there? Well, I, I think we, we have to look, uh, how did we get here? You know, the Industrial Revolution, we, 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 we were still making company. And uh, and so many of the homeowners in, in that area worked at the steel plants. Mm. So you take jobs away from people, you take homes, you take families, you takes a lot. It, it takes a lot. I remember my father used to quote all the time. He said, "If you give a person a job, you solve ninety percent of their problem." So I've watched where the neighborhoods declined because they were they 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 no longer had jobs. The loss of Bethlehem was something that I think hit the region. I'm wondering, though, if there are particular racist issues along Jefferson and the East Side that also keep people of color from getting jobs. There, there, there's always been um, racism. Racism already always existed, and, and it's just a matter of how you handle it at this stage in, in my life. Okay. You know, it's, it's always existed. It existed when I was a child when they bust me from the East Side to, to North Buffalo. You know, and, and they try to incorporate a system that just didn't work. And they it happened when I was a child when they took away the 33. I, I used to ride my bike on the 33 before it got started. It was a beautiful parkway. On Humboldt, yeah. On Humboldt. I grew up on Humboldt Parkway. Okay. So I watched it all. Mm. I, you know, Jefferson was around the corner for me. Let, let me ask you, do you want to see it uh, paved over again? And, and No, no, I don't want to see it paved over. Tell me why. It, it makes no sense now, unless you unless you incorporate other things. So you know, one contractor, a couple of contractors will get a lot of money to pave the, <laughs> pave yeah. the, uh, pave it over, and then it's you know what, what do you have? You know, we have to have strategic plans. Don't give me a band aid, and you can't 
band-aid something when you've already cost a lot of people generational wealth. What are you going to do for that? You know, it's it's a lot more uh, until we get into the heart and, and really do strategic planning on how you're going to really build a neighborhood. Make it a national disaster and, and, and really create something that's, that's more. You know, get Fortune 500 companies to come in there. You know, out, out of all the help, and we needed that help after the top shooting, all the help I saw, I didn't see one company say, we're going to go hire some black people. I don't want to create a false narrative. And in fact, at the beginning, I said, we're going to bust some myths here. Mm -hmm. But talk about the difficulties maybe you've had putting something in that 1490 building, or even going back to the history of your dad, a grocery store, liquor store. How hard is it to maintain a business on the east side? Is it tougher than the guy on Hurdle or Elmwood might might have? I, I believe it's tougher because we don't have a strong neighborhood base. We don't have a strong homeowner base that's required to keep businesses as a flow. Now, we, we need more than we have a lot of businesses that continue to come, but I think still the neighborhoods need more housing and, and job opportunities. You know, but I've had a business close to over 50, almost 50 years. I succeeded well. I mean, you, you, you have to reach the neighborhood, reach out to the people. The people don't always not concentrate in one area. They come from all over, and they support black businesses, and they support other businesses. But um, the difficulty in the business is with any business. You're, 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 you have your challenges with money, of course, and, and money is always having the right, the proper capital to, to keep the businesses going. And, and, and sometimes uh, when you're looking at market studies and demographic studies, it's more difficult to access to the capital that's what's needed to uh, really have the business, business generating the way you would like it to. Let's talk a little bit about the Black Achievers, the museum and I guess the, the honors and the movement, all of the stuff that you've pulled together now for 50 years. Yes. Uh, every year you have a class of inductees. We try to elevate our community and the majority community to see all the talents and skills and, and wonderful things black Americans are doing that you would never even know about. And I'm still amazed every year because I don't know them all either. But we don't have this avenue to get that information out, you know. So I'm hopeful that with the Black Achievers, as we continue to do what we do, can be shown to more people to know that African Americans and Black Americans can do more than what they think they can do, and it, and I think that is us being able to showcase their their talents. Is it a matter of honoring those who achieve, or is it kind of holding them up and saying to the rest of the community, to the younger generation, these are role models? It's both. Okay. It's both. It's absolutely both. Because many of our achievers, they accelerate to higher positions because after they receive the award, you know, other peers and other people in their company say, oh, I didn't know you did all of that. Maybe you should be up here instead. And uh, as I've gotten older, one of the things I'm hopeful of black achievers is companies will come and say, hey, we know you have all these achievers over the years. Can we put them on our board? Can we put them on our board? And that way we can make decisive and, and more influence and decision-making on many companies that's uh, in Western New York. And the museum is actually a space where these people are honored? No, the museum is a space where we um, showcase 
all the bios and pictures over the years. We have a historical room of my father, who was the founder, showing some of his pictures and awards. We have touch screens where you can pull up their their person's achievers name and we have a multi-purpose room where we uh, host uh, events and our youth academy is there as well and where we um, work with our youth as well to to inspire them to be achievers as well because we give out scholarships every year and particularly this year we're going to give out scholarships to every city high school in buffalo to at least one black american in their school over the 50 years how many have you had I believe it's probably about 2,500, I think. Yeah, probably roughly about 2,500. Wow. Yeah. And uh, typical classes, how many? Typical classes used to be between 20 and 30. Lately, we've been having 40 to 50. This year, we have 50 celebrating 50 years. Okay. I stop it most of the time. I can generally have more than 50 or more than 40 if people come too late. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. I had to turn down a few this year because uh, it just didn't make it in time when we have deadlines as well. And I wanted to keep it at 50 achievers so everybody could be recognized properly. Sure. I mean, we have a whole extravaganza. We have the red carpet ceremony. We have dinner. We have uh, celebrities come and as well and and singing and dancing. And and it's it's a real fun night and it's a celebration night. And it it makes people feel good at the end of the day. And and, and so so many relationships are built afterwards because of that. Herbert Bellamy Jr., 1490 Enterprises, and the Black Achievers uh, Dinner coming up on October 7th. This is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, a second chance to hear important interviews from our daily discussion on race, segregation, and our shared humanity. Coming up, a major national conference on food equity comes to Buffalo. Dave Debo talked about it with organizer Kevin Gaughan. Well, first and foremost, and as you say, in the aftermath of the uh, of the brutal, inhumane, and racist attack that took place, uh, like every Buffalonian and indeed every American, uh, in my grief, and um, and I couldn't get out of my head, you know, the the, the irretrievable loss of all those dreams, and and uh, the um, and of course the enormous discussion about uh, food inequity and uh, the fact that there was just one supermarket on the east side uh, in our city. Uh, the, um, and I was struck by that. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, if the high court of history looked back on the tragedy and the immense discussion and re- re- reawakening and refocus of us and the nation on, on uh, food justice, uh, and we did nothing, uh, I think we would have been uh, judged harshly. I did some research. Almost 30 million Americans live with little or no access to fresh food and vegetables. And of course, that speaks to health and nutrition. And when you say 20, 30 million Americans, that's that's children. And of course, it, in the context in which we work here in Buffalo is, as we all know, and, and this program has highlighted so uh, wonderfully, uh, we're the fourth most impoverished city in America, and we're among the most segregated cities in America. So this large population, more than 70, 75,000 in East Buffalo, um, with just one supermarket, and then just over the urban boundary in, in uh, Cheektowaga, there's about the same amount of people with 10 supermarkets. So I spent most of June and, and part of July traveling the country, and, and of course I found an immense, immense amount of scholars, um, experts, educators, and most important practitioners, uh, folks who have devoted their lives to this issue, because here, here's the three things I've learned. 
um, first and foremost, food inequity and food injustice is in America existed long before uh, the, the uh, tragedy here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Secondly, those black citizens and leaders here in East Buffalo have um, strived mightily for years to find solutions to this problem, and they've made great progress. Third, I learned all they need is resources. So I, the idea I got was, what if we could get in one room those great black leaders in our city, in the East Side, who understand this issue uh, most deeply, and those with uh, women and men with the resources to perhaps um, make um, not one-off, you know, not uh, uh, um, a, a, a temporary investment, but long-term sustainable investments to get to the bottom of this issue. You have about 13 different people coming in for the summit, uh, at least 13 guests that are confirmed and several others that you've invited. And it's a conference of national stature. When the shootings happened, I think people said racism is not a Buffalo problem, but it's a problem in Buffalo. Similarly, food inequity is not necessarily a Buffalo problem, but certainly a problem in Buffalo. Yes, sir. And uh, the what I've learned, uh, the uh, again, from these black voices, and by the way, as you mentioned, this conference is going to be led by black and brown voices. Including uh, you have the president of Morehouse College. David Thomas is one of your co-chairs. Uh, the uh, Morehouse College, one of our nation's most historically significant black uh, colleges. And I came across him because in the aftermath of the Buffalo shooting, he wrote these beautiful and very poignant uh, uh, blog posts about uh, not only uh, gun violence and minority communities, uh, the, uh, but, uh, but food equity as well. And then we also have, and we're honored to have, Rita Hubbard-Robinson, who's mm-hmm. perhaps uh, Buffalo's leading voice in uh, food access. Uh, the... Um, uh, uh, so I, they're, they're going to be in charge of, uh, of the discussion. Uh, the, um, and as you say, what I'm really trying to do is um, find as many folks, both with the resources, uh, investors, finance people, banks, and other national experts, and get them in the room so that they can see what Buffalo has done already. Uh, the, um, in effect, what this conference is attempting to do is it's time now for this nation to address this inequity. And by the way, of course, food inequity is just sort of a portal to the massive disinvestment mm. uh, that uh, um, took place in communities like East Buffalo. Uh, just uh, looking at the WBFO survey that you did months ago and one of your fine reporters, Mr. O'Neill White, uh, the um, uh, we all learned again dramatically about these attitudes that resulted. We all can remember the shameful practice of uh, banks and institutions uh, making some maps that said, invest here, but don't mm-hmm. invest there. And of course, th- so food inequity is an outcome of that. Uh, the um, So it just seems to me that um, uh, now that um, people, more and more people like myself are recognizing that food access, it's a civil right. It's a human right. And it's now time to redress it. And I thought, what if Buffalo led the way? Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, uh, too, uh, the Philadelphia story is really more than a movie with uh, uh, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> there are a lot of initiatives in Philadelphia that you're bringing here to talk about. In, I, uh, tell me about the Philadelphia story and what we might be able to possibly learn from them. Right. So the way we're going to try to uh, structure our conference is, first we'll have some national presenters, and that will include, um, uh, I found this magnificent entity this uh, uh, um, uh, called the Food Trust in Philadelphia, which also has a, uh, a severe problem uh, in this regard. And uh, the uh, they're going to be represented uh, and they're going to come and, and sort of give the national perspective. Mm-hmm. In addition, of course, uh, uh, the um, I was surprised and pleased to learn there's also financial entities that have been formed in the country over these past uh, decades to um, raise funds and capital 
to create new sort of business models. Again, this is a very complex issue and problem. And speaking to the ones who understand it the most, people like Alexander Wright, who founded mm-hmm. our African uh, Heritage Food Co-op, and Al- Allison DeHoney. Uh, who is Rebecca, trying to do a Grow Green project over there. That's right, right yeah. Right. The uh, CEO of Fruits and Veggies and uh, and Rebecca Williams and, of course, uh, um, uh, Rita. Uh, the, um, the answer is not just supermarkets. The answer, of course, is also local grocery stores, farms, hydroponics. In other words, there's several components that have to be um, placed in a community in a neighborhood in which that type of investment heretofore hasn't happened, which is just so shameful. Uh, the um, So again, I'm hoping that um, in addition to these national presenters, we'll also have someone from the Reinvestment Fund in Philadelphia, again, which is an entity that raises fund and ca- funds and capital to assist people like uh, like Allison and uh, Alex. Uh, the um, And then, of course, we uh, I had to talk my way into these financial institutions, uh, and I take a measure of pride in doing it on behalf of my community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Bank of America, Ted Janicki, who's president of Bank of America here in Buffalo, he, he's going to be there. Uh, the um, a, an acquaintance, a, lo- a longtime acquaintance of mine, uh, John Thornton, who's former president of Goldman Sachs, perhaps our nation's most prestigious investment bank, and also chairman emeritus of the Brookings Institution, which is one of the most progressive think tanks in America. Uh, the uh, he's going to be there as well. You also have on the agenda, and th- this is interesting to me. You have uh, John Persons from Tops. I didn't know John before undertaking this initiative, and I called John. Uh, who again I didn't know, and and that wonderful man called right back back straight away. Uh, the um, and of course we all saw the the leadership that he demonstrated in in the aftermath of uh, sort of navigating the tops of matter and the difficult choices that had to be made. But yes, the in addition, I felt the final component of the uh, composition of this conference should be supermarket executives. So we've actually invited the six largest, uh, the CEOs of the six largest supermarket executives in America. And John was the first to say yes. And uh, the, um, because I think he understands like all businessmen, number one, competition's good. Number two, and perhaps much more important, is that um, it's, this problem is no longer something that America uh, should be uh, uh, burdened with. What do you picture happening as a result of this conference. A nice speakers, Kevin. Okay, thank you very much. And they, everybody disperses. <laughs> Not necessarily the plan. Uh, this is a one-day conference, but its purpose is to give rise to a comprehensive follow-up report. What I You call, want a plan. Yes, sir. Uh, the I should say, more important, these wonderful people, again, in East Buffalo, these black leaders who have been working so hard, they already have a plan. And the, they're going to be able now for perhaps the first time to show it again with people with the resources. So I, my idea is that um, the conference will uh, – another thing that I learned, of course, is there's a, broad, there's a broad array of views on what the, what the solution is to this, uh, to this problem. They will all be represented at this conference, which, by the way, is taking place on Wednesday, October 12th. And um, my view is that we synthesize and uh, uh, report to the country – uh, afterward, a f- comprehensive report of what Buffalo is doing and offering as a model, because we're getting closer to, to uh, resolving this. A lot of work and a lot of investment has to take place. Um, but um, again, to uh, offer Buffalo as a model of what, what the, the nation can do and other cities can do, because as you say, this is not a Buffalo problem. Sure. It's an American one. It's good if we have a plan to place another supermarket or or to help out um, Alexander Wright or Alison Dahoney. All of that's great and good. But what are your thoughts on ways, and I'm, I'm talking more broadly than the conference, what are your thoughts on ways to tackle the inequity? How do we, how do we combat racism? I think in some small way, 
the way to address it is to do what we're trying to do with the conference, which is begin the conversation on a specific component mm -hmm. of inequity. This happens to be food access. Uh, the um, fully and comprehensively understand it and ed educate it, highlight and bring attention to those folks who understand it in the most deep way through their own experience, and then do what um, what takes place in every suburb, uh, the uh, in every uh, majority community. Uh, it's a harsh reality, but it's true, and that is um, have investment. Mm. Uh, have the bankers say yes. Kevin Gaughan is here. He's the convener of a national conference on food inequity coming to Buffalo on October 12th. Kayla Elliott is Director of Higher Education Policy at the Education Trust, and she says student loan debt relief is just the start and only part of the discussion on generational wealth. I think there are, there are a number of very real issues for every student, right? Um, whether that is the ability to pay, whether that is um, the ability to navigate being a first-generation student and understanding application processes, there are also a number of barriers in admissions put in place by institutions that keep a number of students out, whether that is undocumented students, whether that is students who have um, uh, interactions with the justice system um, and are discouraged, either not allowed to apply or discouraged from applying. There are a number of, of barriers to admission and access. Um, and affordability is absolutely a major one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go on record saying it's the number one without, uh, without doing the research first. All right. And I also imagine, too, because of the way the process works, uh, obviously, before you have to figure out whether you can afford it, you have to get that admission. And so, so chronologically, it, it falls further down in the uh, procedure. Yes and no. So I would think that the cost of the cost of college actually discourages those many people from applying, right, or believing that it is a reality or attainable or affordable for them, right? So I, I think that might work for some, saying I'm going to apply and then figure out if I can afford it once I see uh, my financial aid package and hopefully get a financial aid package and an award letter that I actually understand that tells me what grants, what loans, what scholarships, and what the difference is. Because um, we know that standard uh, financial aid letters are not standardized from institution to institution, and that we call it an award letter, but we know that they're not all awards and rewards and gifts. We know that much of that package can be loans for some students, right? So even the clarity and understanding the cost of college um, once you have been admitted um, isn't always there. So the forgiveness measure, it sounds like you're saying, and I, I get what you said earlier about the need for other programs. It sounds as if the forgiveness measure is not going to do a heck of a lot for increasing access. Am I right? You got to think about who borrowers are. A lot of these borrowers are parents of college students, are parents of students who may go to college one day, right? Um, the average, the, the oldest millennials are 40 now, right? Um, and so we are thinking not just about our own access, but about a family's access and what this is doing for a family's wealth. We know that this measure has moved a number of African-Americans in particular from negative wealth to positive wealth. So I definitely think that if we are talking about, is this an access program, we wouldn't call it that, right? Like this is about, this is about debt cancellation. This is about addressing a harm that was done, addressing bad debt, addressing loans that were built poorly, um, and programs that were supposed to pro provide relief that did not. 
assist about that for sure. But that relief will absolutely result in access for students who owe balances and now can return to school. For borrowers who are thinking about, um, like I said, returning to school or the education of their spouse, their children, um, I do think that it creates access in a number of ways. What else needs to be done, not so much on the financial front, but overall in order to ensure better access for minorities? I think students of color face a number of barriers. Um, I do think we need better uh, financial aid packages, better understanding, better clarity on the actual cost of college, right? Like being very clear in financial aid award letters, being very clear in um, financial aid counseling about the cost of college. I think that there's an onus on the institutions, but also on state governments and the federal government to standardize some of that um, and make it easier for families to understand um, both the cost of college and how much support that they're receiving from um, federal, state, and institutional sources. I think that's one for sure. Um, there are a number of practices, like I said before, around admissions and applications that institutions can um, put put aside. One of those that's both access and Um, that's like an access and affordability issue is application fees, right? Like, so students who cannot afford to to pay the application fee to your college um, are are meeting a very real barrier. So doing away with practices that keep students out, whether that is application fees, whether that is, um, as I said before, various students that are asked about their history, whether that is their their, uh, criminal, potential criminal um, background, or their citizenship status. Um, There are just a number of things that institutions are asking or considering in admissions um, decisions that are not germane to whether or not a student will be successful um, that keep them out. We close today's show with Dr. Anthony Neal, a political science and Africana studies professor at SUNY Buffalo State in conversation with Jay Moran. First, let's just take a, a, a national, kind of a broad issue here. Here we are in the year uh, 2022, a couple of years off from a a national election, but also a midterm election coming up here. When it comes to the black voter, I mean, I don't know if we can necessarily speak monolithically about it, but what are you seeing as the key issues when it comes to the black voting public nationally? Ironically, uh, you really can't speak of it as a monolith, but we do know that it seems like 90, 90 plus percent of the black vote has typically gone to the Democratic Party. Even though you do have some Republican candidates and some African Americans who are you know, going over to the Republican side, and even under the MAGA side, for the most part, uh, uh, black voters are with the Democratic Party. Even, but the question then becomes uh, turnout. Are they energized enough to actually go out and vote uh, as they were in uh, 2020 and 2018, for example? And that is, of course, always a good question. When it comes to midterms, of course, it's, that's always really a, a big part of the, the concern. Midterms don't generally uh, spark that type of interest. What, if any, are the issues that might be bringing black voters out to the polls this fall? Uh, typically, as, as you stated, Jay, the midterms do not uh, have that much interest, and that hasn't bowled well for the incumbent party. I know uh, Bill Clinton lost big during the midterms, and of course uh, Barack Obama lost big. 
uh, Joe Biden, however, there's a question mark. Uh, early on, uh, Republicans were seen as taking over uh, control of, of Congress. But as of late, with you know, various Supreme Court rulings and, the, of course, the investigations of the former president just still on the horizon and still going on, some are starting to say that it seems like uh, the tide may be turning slowly toward the Democrats holding on to holding on to Congress. My uh, colleague uh, Dave Debo likes to ask a question toward the end of these uh, conversations, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Dr. Neal. Um, what does Buffalo need? What does Buffalo need? We we know the the problems of. Segregation, we know the problems of poverty, and almost certainly worth discussing and continuing to repeat. But at the same time, what does Buffalo need? Well, coming from Atlanta, I've always stated that Buffalo needs uh, dynamic, bold leadership. And I, I address that in the issue of, for example, Maynard Jackson, the mayor of uh, Buffalo, when he stated that the new uh, Hartsville Airport would not be built, we know that's one of the busiest hubs in the country now, that the airport would not be built unless there was community input and to the whole community was allowed to benefit from the building of that airport. And they created a lot of uh, black entrepreneurship. For example, now I know it's outside the purview of the mayor of the city of Buffalo, but the new stadium that's being built, who's who's going to stay, stand up and say that this new stadium must have wide community input and participation from all sectors of the community of West New York before the stadium gets built? I don't feel that type of dynamic leadership. I believe there is an Erie County legislator who's leaning along that, those lines, but in terms of strong, dynamic, matter-of-fact leadership that says this is how it must be uh, from a strong negotiating position, I, I don't. Uh, I think that's somewhat absent. You know, Dr. Neal, I, I, I have to give you credit here. I think you just uh, gave us a, a, a topic for a future show here on uh, Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for that. But it is, I mean, not, just uh, kidding aside, though, that that is a great. Comparison, right? I mean, the idea that 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 airport in Atlanta has—I mean, everybody's flown through it, right? We know how significant it is, but you're saying it only happened because somebody—it it only benefited the community because somebody stepped up and made it uh, made it happen, basically. And said that it, it, unless it does, it will not happen. Unless it happens for all, it will not happen. Period. <laughs> These conversations come to you each weekday from WBFO's discussion program, Buffalo, What's Next? It's available as a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's also on demand online at WBFO.org. You can hear the program each morning at 10 on WBFO, and it's rebroadcast each night at 9. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for listening.